Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, in honor of Father's Day, we take a good look at the history and enduring appeal of the so-called dad joke with the director of comedy studies at the famed Second City in Chicago. We find out why municipal pools and public beaches across the country may struggle to stay open this summer because of a lifeguard shortage being seen right across the continent. We also look at why rental cars are in such short supply right now and what the road ahead looks like for that. But first, organizers and police unveiled their plans for Canada Day festivities in Ottawa this year. After a two-year hiatus, they are expecting a lot of people to descend on the nation's capital. But with protests also planned, and with the trucker convoy of this past winter still fresh in everyone's memory, police are also promising heavy security. Well, first up, uh, plans were unveiled today for Canada Day celebrations in the nation's capital in Ottawa, a return to festivities after a few years without them. Tens of thousands of people are expected to be in the nation's capital for the celebration. They've moved it down a bit to a place called Le Breton Flats, which is uh, just a few kilometers west of Parliament Hill. Uh, so keeping stuff off the hill because there's ongoing renovation there. But Ottawa police will also be on alert for potential disruptions following the weeks-long blockade of Parliament Hill over over the winter and vows from protesters that they will be there uh, for the big day and uh, for a bit this summer. An Ottawa police officer says this year we'll see a, quote, unprecedented and unique Canada Day. Well, what exactly does that mean? Uh, he says it's with never before seen security posture in this city. Um, joining me now with more is Michael Kempa. He is in Ottawa. He's an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. So we're finding out a little bit more about exactly what Canada Day is going to look like in Ottawa. And uh, it looks like it'll be at least uh, security will be a lot tighter than it has been in the past. Yes, it'll have to be a lot tighter on account of there are very many planned demonstrations. Uh, the return of the so-called freedom movement back to protest the remaining vaccine mandates, such as they are at this time, will be mixed in with ordinary Canada Day revelers and other groups that will be looking to make their points at several different locations across the city. It sounds like quite the challenge. I mean, Canada Day at its best of times. Uh, I know, I guess it's important to point out that the actual official celebrations will not be happening on Parliament Hill this year. That's right. They're moving them down to the Le Breton Flats area, which is about two kilometers to the west of the parliamentary buildings. Um, it's sort of an underutilized space. The city has had plans to turn it into a major residential and shopping district. Like many things in Ottawa, the development has been a little bit slow, but it is a, it is a pleasant space um, to make use of for major festivals and, and things like fireworks for Canada Day. So, but, but again, because of where it is, there's not much around there. So I'm assuming that most people who will be heading to those festivities would probably come through the downtown area where Parliament Hill is. So, so how do police propose to try and keep everything peaceful and, and, and organized? So number one, we've learned through the February convoy and then the rolling thunder uh, motorcycle protests that rolled through uh, in the month of May. You've got to keep vehicles moving. You cannot allow people to bed down in the thoroughfares, in the roadways with their vehicles. And the police are well within their rights and responsibilities to block off certain roads direct traffic to areas where vehicles can legally be left and parked and so forth and so on, and basically make sure that people rather than vehicles have their charter rights to go about wherever they may please make their peaceable points um, and otherwise enjoy the day. 
I gather that Ottawa police have jurisdiction uh, for the main event for the first time. What prompted that change? What does that mean? Well, since they've moved away from the parliamentary district with the main celebration, that is in the terror that Le Breton's flat is just in an ordinary Ottawa City municipal space. So the police will take the lead in coordinating that event. It almost doesn't really matter in a sense which police agency is in charge as long as who is in charge is clear. And this time it's crystal clear. It's the Ottawa police for most of those ordinary celebrations taking place in the Le Breton Flats area. Um, how, will, how do you think it will look for, for the average uh, sort of tourist just heading there or Ottawa heading there just to enjoy the Le Breton Flats part of things if there's all kinds of stuff going on elsewhere? What, it sounds like it's going to be a complex operation to try to keep uh, everyone happy and everyone uh, sort of to themselves. There's potential, I imagine, for, for flare-ups. Well, there, there, there is that potential, and that's the worry on both sides. So on the side of the so-called freedom movement, you have people that are not happy with the previous state response, seeing people charged and processed through the court system, their leadership especially. But then in the community side, there are people who are growing increasingly intolerant of having large groups of people making what they see to be offensive points Sometimes, not always, but in an offensive way, if we're talking about loud noise past 11, truck horns and so forth. So there's the danger that these groups could clash. So ordinary revelers mixing with protesters, mixing with security services, mixing with aggrieved local residents. That's a volatile combination. So the idea of saying, all right, let's take to the best we can the revelers to a separate area Let's make sure traffic keeps moving so that the residents don't get too upset. And let's frankly allow people to make whatever points that they might like to make in public space, however ridiculous others may feel that those points are, as long as they're not criminal forms of hate speech, there's really there's no harm in allowing them to do that. Don't make martyrs out of people who, who, who would like to make arguments about the remaining vaccine mandates. My understanding is at the moment, the main focus of the attention is on the 14-day quarantine periods. Um, these are really pretty much the last rules in place, um, outside, of, outside of Alberta, at least. And it's up to people in Canada to decide if there's any sort of merit to that argument. If you're sick, should you be allowed to circulate or should they enforce quarantine? Um, given that the festivities were moved off Parliament Hill this year, mainly because I guess Parliament Hill, there's renovations going on. It's just not a suitable place to have a large event. Uh, how will the Parliament Hill security handle this then? Is there any, I imagine it's all coordinated at this point, but we, we certainly saw a lack of coordination, we thought, uh, over the winter. Yes. The big thing is that we're still not allowing, and we probably should never allow, vehicles along the main road, Wellington, right in front of Parliament, ever again. And that's for the reason that you've got MPs offices, the Supreme Court buildings, parliamentary buildings, um, offices for bureaucrats all along that that would be very attractive to people with bad intentions who may, we're talking about lone wolf type actors, not ordinary protesters, who may want to go into that area with explosives. So we are shutting that down. 
I'm speaking with Michael Kempa. He's an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. We're talking about Heritage Canada and Ottawa Police today unveiling their plans for Canada Day celebrations. This year, of course, they return. Uh, they will not be, the main ones will not be on Parliament Hill, though. They'll be in Le Breton Flats, which is a few kilometers uh, to the west of the hill. But there are lots of different people planning, we believe, or have heard, uh, to make their way towards uh, the parliamentary precinct uh, on Canada Day and before uh, to voice their displeasure over certain government policies that are still in place. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk quickly just about what uh, what the rest of the summer will look like, because there are plans, of course, for different protest groups to uh, to stay in Ottawa, uh, or at least in the Ottawa region, uh, for, for not just Canada Day, but through uh, several weeks. And we'll get to that after this. I'm speaking with Michael Kempa. He's an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Heritage Canada and Ottawa Police today held a briefing, a technical briefing uh, for the media and others to, uh, to make their plans known for Canada Day this year. Of course, this will be uh, a return to something like what we used to see on Canada Day. We're expecting big crowds. The festivities for the main events have been moved uh, to the west of Parliament Hill uh, to a place called the Breton Flats, which is a uh, fairly uh, desolate area, just a, a couple of kilometers to the west of uh, Parliament Hill, but where the where the War Museum is. In other words, there's also going to be some festivities across the way in Gatineau. Um, uh, I guess for the summer, there will be will be a lot of lessons learned for from the convoy, uh, from the from the blockade. How do you think those will be applied this summer? What are police looking out for and 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 how will they try to maintain sort of that that delicate balance between allowing people the right to protest and trying to uh to keep the peace in an area that is often very busy in the summer that that area right around parliament in ottawa the first thing will be very quick and fulsome enforcement of bylaws and ordinary laws that have to do with keeping people moving so anything to do with stopping your vehicle putting your vehicle in a public thoroughfare public road This is already illegal. And where we saw this, people tried to do it again in the motorcycle convoy, rolling thunder. The police moved everybody along very quickly. We'll see more of that. But one thing I'd like to say, though, is the learning goes in both directions. So the state security apparatus has caught up to the techniques that the um, organizers brought forward in February and May with the two convoys. And the convoy organizers have themselves learned. So they have now decided to set up shop or camp where they're intending to stay for the duration of the summer, far on the east end of Ottawa, outside of the municipality's boundaries, on private property, where it will be very difficult for, well, impossible in a sense for Ottawa police, but difficult for other police jurisdictions to do much about it. They're planning to use that hub to coordinate and, I guess, synergize protesters who can leave Ottawa for a little bit, recharge, get their supplies and go back into the city. Their hope is to be able to send tens of thousands of protesters on a regular basis into Ottawa from that external boundary. So now you see the security services, the police will have to catch up to these adapted tactics of the the freedom movement. It's it goes back and forth, this learning in our security services. It's like every time they catch up, they've got something new that they have to deal with. How are the folks of Ottawa feeling this, these days uh, following what happened over over the winter? Is there is there any renewed faith in the Ottawa Police Service's ability to to handle these situations properly? Or has that been uh, is that trust still to be regained? So I haven't done the surveys, but if you take a look at uh, some some uh, more um 
qualitative sources of data. You look at the comments that people are leaving in newspaper media articles. You look at um, call-in radio programs or what people have had to say. There's a sense that the handling of the rolling thunder motorcycle convoy was done well enough by Ottawa police that a significant amount of, of, of renewed faith in crowd control measures by the Ottawa police has come back. But there's still a lot of apprehension uh, in the Ottawa population, sort of an, oh, no, here we go again kind of vibe in the commentary. There's also a lack of understanding in the public where it'll come out on Twitter, it'll come out on the news that the police are coordinating with the protesters that are making their way down for the Canada Day festivities and beyond. Well, I understand that that might perplex people and say, well, wait a minute, Are they meant to be doing this? But this is standard and necessary police practice. They try to negotiate and have an agreed plan with all protesters who come to make a peaceable and legal point in the city. And that can include minimizing disruption by providing escorts to convoys through the city to prevent them from stopping. The danger is if groups don't honor their negotiated commitments with the police, as is what happened in the original Freedom Convoy in February, where Ottawa police were told by protest organization that they were coming for 72 hours. And obviously that was not um, what happened. Just just, just yourself. I mean, Canada Day, I lived in Ottawa for quite a while. Canada Day is always something that you kind of look forward to. It's a big event. Uh, Do you think people in general, whether they're coming from other parts of the country or whether they're there in the city already, are going to notice a difference this year in terms of just the, just the way the security works? Because it's always been a relatively light on security event, to be frank, considering how big it is. It has. And, you know, I would say in a sense, as things grow beyond a certain critical mass, I mean, Ottawa's gotten a lot bigger in the last 10 years. It attracts far more tourists and visitors for events like Canada Day. These events have all gotten much bigger. And we see it in other cities as well. You know, Taste of the Danforth, the Greek festival in Toronto, is unrecognizable from what it was when I was a child. Parades around Canada have taken on a life of their own. It requires, beyond a certain size, a much more formal security response, just in a sense, to keep people moving. I think the idea of having a couple of sites even if we don't have protests moving into the future, is probably a great idea. Spread out vast numbers of people, give people a choice of where they'd like to go, whether they may have children or not have children or be worried about you know, crowds being too tight around children. This is just something that we would expect to see. And we shouldn't sort of say, oh, well, protest has ruined it. We're not going to go. We can't handle it. I believe the security services certainly can handle it and not really take away from the quality of the experience for Canadian citizens. Will you be there, Michael? I'll be there. I'll be there for the first time, mostly out of curiosity. I've never had a Canada Day at the Le Breton Flats. Um, and like most people with all of the COVID, this and that for the last couple of years, haven't been to many festivals at all. So a nice outdoor event at Le Breton Flats. I'm starting to sound like the mayor here, like I'm plugging it. But no, I actually will be going as just as, a, as an ordinary person. No, I get you. When I lived there, I would always go. I mean, it was one of those things you'd see all, you'd see all the millions, you know, the, the thousands pouring in and think, oh, man, I don't know if I'm going to brave the crowd. And you'd always end up going because you would felt like you'd missed out on a big event. Michael Kempa, thank you so much for your time. Thank you kindly.
Well, this was the half hour that I've been promising since the beginning of the show, just to tell you about uh, about dad jokes, which is always great. Um, they they really were just jokes. Right? I mean, it, they became dad jokes sort of in the not too uh, distant past. Uh, but with Father's Day coming up, what better way to pay tribute? to dad than with a whole slew of bad dad jokes. Not to be confused with bad jokes, of course, and you certainly don't have to be a dad to tell them. Um, there's a surprise in all this too. The perhaps least surprising form of comedy might be good for you. It's good to laugh. It's a form of connection as well. Well, here's a taste from Will Farrell, Mark Wahlberg, and a dad joke competition. What do mermaids wash their fins with? <laughs> <laughs> Tied. <laughs> the first part was funnier. You should have never thrown the punchline. That was terrible. Did you know in King Arthur's time, one of the knights of the round table collected taxes? His name was Surcharge. Yeah. <laughs> Top that. What did the fried rice say to the shrimp? Fry your rice. Don't walk away from me. <laughs> Is that what it says? Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Did you hear Steve Harvey and his wife got into a fight? <laughs> That's not real, is it? Yeah. It was a family feud. <laughs> Terrible. Will Farrell and Mark Wahlberg there telling some dad jokes. Again, the term dad jokes may be relatively new. The concept of what is a dad joke or what we now call them is not. Uh, no one knows that better than Anne Libra. She's a uh, associate professor of comedy writing at Columbia College in Chicago and director of comedy studies for Second City. And she's here to tell us all about the history and enduring appeal of the dad joke. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Well, just off the top, you sound like it sounds like a fascinating, fascinating job or jobs. Uh, what is it that you do? Uh, I run, I actually created the first degree in comedy writing and performance uh, in the, in the United States. And I teach what I refer to as baby comedians, uh, how to work, uh, what, what we call comedy cross training. Cause what we, what we realized is that the people who come out of the second city, which is where I got my start, uh, tend to be writer, director, performers who work across mediums. And so we teach our students how to be, do have that comedy cross training. Not just to be funny, in other words, but how to be able to do it across m- multiple platforms and, uh, and do it well. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, we're here today to talk about the dad joke, which is uh, always an interesting conversation. Uh, is it a relatively new term or how recent is it? Well, so... Dad joke, the term dad jokes, I mean, dads have been telling jokes for centuries, clearly. Uh, But the term dad joke is actually a relatively new term. Before that, we just called them jokes. Um, But there was a real sort of change in comedy that happens roughly in the 1950s and certainly in the Western world, where we move from jokes that anyone can tell. And jokes that are fairly thin, that are based in puns or surprise, to you have comedians like Lenny Bruce who who are telling jokes that are really based in their own opinion, that are based in in point of view. Um, and so dad, so these the things that we call dad jokes sort of fall out of favor because you can't just tell uh, a Lenny Bruce joke as if it were your own. Right. You, you, you could, but it'd be weird, uh, you know, or you can't tell a Richard Pryor joke uh, as if it were your own. Um, 
But what happens is we need to have a name for the point of view of these <laughs> jokes that are just jokes. And of course, these are the jokes that dads tell. Yeah, well, why is that? I mean, how did it get that moniker? Because because uh, it can both be, I mean, it's funny. I think the first time anyone ever told me, usually someone much younger than you says, wow, that's a dad joke. You kind of take it a bit personally. As, was, it that, <laughs> was it that bad? And, and I guess that's kind of a, a misnomer because dad jokes don't necessarily have to be bad, but it helps. <laughs> no, well, dad, the thing about dad jokes is that when they're told, they're often a way that dads in particular an authority figure wants to like create connection because one of the things that comedy does is it creates a sense between you and I that we have similar knowledge we have similar understanding um so a joke is a way of making connection and dads traditionally uh are 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 more concerned about are less comfortable with making connection Maybe uh, moms are more aware of day to day. So your dad's way of like making a connection with you is to tell a joke that then you're both going to laugh at. And of course, dads may not always do it very well. <laughs> yeah, or groan at. That's always the... Uh... <laughs> exactly. So it, the, it, the point of the joke isn't necessarily for us to, to laugh together. It's almost like being told a familiar story. It's something that connects us. And that, of course, is, is age old, right? Yeah, indeed. I think I think some version of dads uh, saying something awkward <laughs> uh, that that was meant to be playful. It was probably happening uh, at the same time as we were making cave paintings. So, Anne, when you talk about dad jokes, what qualifies as a dad joke, quote unquote? Well, for me, the specifically desert. And by the way, dads can tell all kinds of jokes when they want to. Some dads uh, are very funny, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Some dads actually are comedians, uh, but but for me, what makes something a dad joke is that it's not uh, specific to the point of view of a comedian. Instead, it's a joke that anyone can tell. Um, it might be a riddle, but it also might be uh, a. My, oh, my dad loved what they call shaggy dog jokes, <laughs> which are which are jokes that take like the setup of the joke is like five minutes long and involves complex elements, you know, an orca his favorite joke was about an orchestra that where the bass section was supposed to play Beethoven, but they didn't come in to the very end. All of this ends up with the tagline, which is it's the bottom of the ninth, the score was tied and the bases were loaded. Which is great, <laughs> but it's but it's a joke that's meant to share the pleasure of it, much less than it's meant to uh, evoke hysterical laughter. Yeah, that's the that part of it. I mean, yeah, my dad, <laughs> my dad tells good uh, dad jokes too. The best punchline of his was one that involved uh, carp to carp walleting. <laughs> You don't want to know about a wall being <laughs> dropped in the in the water and two fish jump out and grab it. And, you know, but, but you're right. It was always about the elaborate setup and then the sort of groanful end. Right. Yes. yes. Um, I, I mean, how do comedians feel about about uh, about uh, dad jokes? Because it would feel, you know, for, for those who are used to doing complex and, and, and uh, sort of very complex and personal joke telling the dad joke, I, I guess, feel a bit uh, amateurish. 
Well, it's on one level. I think we all have a, a fondness for them, partially because we all have dads. Uh, and, and I will say this, um, for many people who are in comedy, when you talk to them about where their inspiration was, it's frequently their dad who introduced them to comedy. Their dad who uh, showed them SCTV or who uh, took them to see the Marx Brothers movies. So there's already a sort of connection there. So, so many comedians have a sort of fondness for the idea of dad jokes. Um, but also, they're, they're the cleanest, tightest, simplest jokes. They're jokes that have once, you know, it's a riddle. Where, do, where does the uh, uh, general keep his ar- armies? In his sleeveys. Right. And it's a joke, which is a joke that was not told to me by, by not told me by a dad per se, but was told to me by Bernie Sollins, who was one of the founders of Second City. But in the same way your dad tells you, he's like, do you want to hear a riddle? <laughs> which is always which is always buyer beware kind of moment. Yes, right? Exactly. So I think there's a joy in them. Right. There's a joy in this sort of simple setup and punchline construction. There's the joy in how this is the kind of story that anyone can tell. You know, none of us would be caught dead as a professional comedian telling one of these on stage. But backstage, a lot of comedians sort of collect them. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, they call, they all, comedians will call them street jokes. Right. Sort right. of like sort of like having, you know, the difference between having a having a street hot dog versus going to a great restaurant. Exactly. Right. Like it's a guilty pleasure. <laughs> and it's nothing you do in front of a paying audience. But but when you get the chance, there's a there's a sort of joy in in how they work and in their sort of universality. I'm speaking with Anne Libra. She's a uh, associate professor of comedy writing at Columbia College in Chicago. Uh, and a director of comedy studies for Second City will be uh, back after this with more about uh, the fascinating world of dad jokes. Stick around. This half hour, I have the pleasure of speaking with Anne Libra. She's an associate professor of comedy writing at Columbia College in Chicago, a director of comedy studies for Second City. You may know the name, uh, a famous comedy spot. Um, and also teaches a course, I believe, in dad jokes. Is that, did I have that right? Do you actually? Uh, I said, so, no. <laughs> It's not actually a course in dad jokes per se, I should say. Uh, uh, As part of uh, my first year uh, comedy survey class, where I get a giant room full of 18-year-old aspiring comedians uh, in front of me, (laughs) which, as you can imagine, is a little bit like doing a stand-up act every week, uh, we spend a fair amount of time on jokes. And... Uh, and then I will say this, my students were the first ones who introduced me to the idea of it being called dad jokes. I was really just talking to them about here's how a simple joke works and what's the sort of math behind it. And they're like, oh, it's dad jokes. We love dad jokes. <laughs> That's great. So what is the simple math? And I think you kind of got to it earlier, but there is a simplicity to it, right? It's either a lot of it's in the buildup with the with the short punny uh, uh, punchline or, but what is the mathematics of, of a good joke or a dad joke? Well, well, a joke itself is a setup that sets up ex- an expectation. So it, it, it makes you assume uh, something uh, is going to happen. So, uh, all right, here's a joke that I always use um, that that's a little uh, off color, shall we say, uh, sure. which is the, the, the setup is what's brown and sticky. <laughs> 
Oh, no. <laughs> which, of course, brings to mind a certain bodily function. Indeed. <laughs> uh, but the, the punchline then reverses that expectation. And the punchline for that particular joke is a stick. True. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, so, so one of the things about that punchline then is that it's meant to both uh, the the punchline should reverse the expectation you have, but it should also be true. Right. So there's there's an element of surprise to it too, even yes. though you may groan when you, when you hear it. Yeah. Well, and and again, it's 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 not sophisticated by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> and it's meant to be um, something that anybody can understand. Are they universal? I mean, in that sense, do, do, do we know that other cultures have, you know, that all around the world, there are kids and, and other, others sort of rolling their eyes at something someone in the room is telling them? Well, it's interesting. I mean, jokes themselves don't travel well because uh, expectations, uh, the setups and reversals and language are all very cultural specific. Um, but every culture has their version of a dad joke. Uh, we, but the, the funny thing is, of course, if you tried to translate, it would make no sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> always like what's black and white and red all over. A newspaper, right? That was always the one my dad used to tell me. Well, was... Or a sunburned zebra. <laughs> right. That one has a million permutations. Yes, it does. <laughs> Sadly. Uh, well, and again, that's the pleasure is that we can start. We start to get the mechanism. I and mean, one of my favorite things is kids making up their own jokes. Where like they, is, get, they get the idea there's a surprise, but they don't actually know uh, how it's supposed to work. Yeah, it always comes off, comes off a bit disjointed or not. It, they're almost uh, you know, sort of abstract in that yes, way. It's yes. fascinating. What, what did the lion say to the butterfly? Boo! <laughs> exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. When I mean, I feel like the word dad joke now has become obviously a bit of a generational thing, right? So it's kind of a way of saying, when do you think it became associated with, I suppose it always has been, but when did it become associated with sort of a passage of time? Like all of a sudden you're no longer, uh, you know, to, to use a very old phrase, you're no longer hip to what's hip when you're telling these kinds of jokes. Well, I think what's interesting, I mean, you could you can probably trace it back to the dads who were around in the 1940s and early 1950s uh, who weren't listening to the hip comedy albums in the days when comedy was on records, uh, who weren't listening to the hip comedy albums, who didn't know this sort of point of view humor and instead just wanted to share the jokes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean that that makes that makes perfect sense. I mean, th- these days it really does imply sort of uh, something that you're, you know, something that someone out of a different generation would say. What's strange is that although you know whole generations of, of parents, uh, people my age, you know, in their early fifties, have grown up with all sorts of subversive comedy. Uh, you know, you could still pull out the dad joke, right? That's always, I've always found that interesting that somehow it, it does not just, it, it's not just about a, a certain period of time, but it seems to be a, you know, sort of a, a passage of time for the individual brain, brain, I wonder. Well, it's also, I mean, it's a joke that anyone can tell. And it's a joke. Most of them are jokes anyone can tell to anyone. So again, it's a joke that grandpa can tell to dad in front of the kids it's a joke that dad can tell the kids and it's not, uh, it, it's safe and it's got this sort of uh, uh, ease to it that we're all going to get it. It doesn't require you having any adult knowledge or uh, awareness of drug culture, say. <laughs> exactly. 
So I imagine your recommendation then, because I imagine some when you know when when a when a joke gets a gets a term like dad joke, perhaps there are many out there who may think twice about telling one, thinking ah maybe that'll land wrong. Uh, but but happiness and, and joy is universal, laughter is universal, and and breaking you know uh, connection is universal. So I imagine your your recommendation is to keep telling those dad jokes. Just make sure you tell them properly. One hundred percent. Tell tell that joke and tell it proud. <laughs> Yeah. And, and any favorites of yours? I'm trying to think of other ones. You know what? The funny thing about dad jokes is that you forget them. You forget them. Like I can remember entire Eddie Murphy routines. I can remember entire, remember entire George Carlin routines or Stephen Wright routines. But I have a hard time remembering dad jokes off the top of my head. Well, I mean, again, my fav- my, my, the personal one that I love to tell my students is the one about the general. Uh, where does the general keep his armies and his sleeves? That's an excellent one. <laughs> That's an excellent. It's so bad. And yet so good. Yes. So good. So where do you think it goes from here? I mean, I, it feels like dad joke is a relatively, relatively modern uh, terminology. Do you think it'll change over time at all? Or is, is, are we here to stay with the term? I, I, I think dads are always going to tell jokes. And I think dads are always going to tell bad jokes. And dads are always going to want to play with their kids and maybe feel a little uncomfortable about it. Uh, that's not going anywhere. Um, whether we'll still call them dad jokes in uh, 30 years that I don't know. That is the new thing, right? Is, the, is that is that we have this persona attached to these jokes that everyone can tell. Well, and it gives me great comfort to know that there are whole rooms full of aspiring comedians who will jump out of their seats to tell you how much they love, love dad jokes. Absolutely. And Libra, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. It was mine. Well, with the summer heat on the way, one place more than a few people like to go, especially if you live in a city, is the beach or, well, perhaps not you live in the city, but if you live in the city, the local swimming pool has always been a real oasis in the summer. But there is a chronic shortage of lifeguards in this country right now, right across North America, actually. And that could mean public pools staying closed or at least shorter hours during the hottest days of the year, beaches left unattended. So what does that all mean? Joining me now is Barbara Byers. She's, she's the Senior Research Officer with the Lifesaving Society of Canada. Thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you, Ben. So we talked about a bit about this uh, over the winter that there might be or could or would probably be a shortage of lifeguards uh, heading into the summer season. Uh, what is the reality right now that we're uh, it's fast approaching, if not already here in some areas? Yeah, there's a lifeguard shortage across Canada, across the United States, uh, from colleagues in uh, Europe as well. Um, it really is uh, driven, I would say, by the pandemic, like a lot of other things. Uh uh, stemming back to when um, when COVID hit in March of 2020, um, a lot of things stopped and pools were closed. So many of the staff who were working at the pools uh, were furloughed or let go. And so uh, two plus years ago, those people have gone on to do other things. And now that they're needed to work at pools, uh, they, they're not available. They've got their own uh, careers now outside of uh, lifeguarding. Uh, The other factor is that for many of those staff who were not let go with municipalities, what they were done, what happened to them is they were furloughed in that they worked, they had different jobs for the municipal government, Uh, for example, vaccine clinics, um, public health related positions, uh, cutting grass, working at arenas, all sorts of things. So while they're still employed, they've been gone for two years. In some cases, some staff came back over the last two years, you know, 
for periods of time and then things were shut down again, especially in Ontario where things were shut down uh, quite extensively. So uh, while there were staff, there were more skeleton staff and limited hours for public swimming and so on, which brings us to sort of March, April of 2020 and the realization that everything is going to be open across the country and, uh, and then the scramble to try and get uh, lifeguards and swim instructors to work at the pools, uh, to work at the pools for all the hours that are required. And then adding to that is many municipalities have outdoor pools uh, where they need staffing uh, for those pools as well. So there's a limited talent pool, so to speak. And uh, those who are available, uh, many, you know, don't want to work full time. They will do part time assignments and so on. So there's a real scramble. There's a real, um, you know, fight to get to get staff to work at the pools. And uh, it's really kind of uncertain. Here we are at the middle of June. What the situation will look like, um, you know, by the end of June, when Usually at that time, all the outdoor pools are open, all the indoor pools are open, and the public comes, you know, flocking to the pools to go swimming. I mean, growing up, it always seemed like such a great job. (laughs) But I imagine you're right. I mean, everyone, everyone is struggling uh, to find staff right now in in that age group uh, as well. But um, what kind of impact, you were mentioning it now, what kind of impact could that have on, you know, I imagine lots of people are excited to head back to the pool this year. Uh, What kind of impact could it have on, on municipalities and their public pools, on beaches and so forth? Well, I guess there's two, two, uh, types of impact. One is safety and the other is sort of public relations. Um, From the safety perspective, beaches, um, those beaches that are staffed by lifeguards um, are a very popular place to go. Of course, there's much many beaches across the country that have no lifeguards, but um, many beaches, many municipalities have beaches that do. And if there aren't enough staff at the lifeguards, what really the implication of that is, um, is a safety issue because people will still go to the beaches even if there aren't staff. And uh, they go at times when the lifeguards are not working, like beyond their shift times. And uh, often, even when the lifeguards are working, they swim in areas where the lifeguards aren't, aren't supervised. And so I always say the safest place to swim is where lifeguards are working. And at beaches, you need to look to see where the flags are and when the flags are out to know where the lifeguards are working. So this could mean there are shorter hours for lifeguards at beaches could mean some beaches are not staffed at all could mean some days there aren't lifeguards so that's all to be confirmed and of course it varies by uh, municipality across the country so that's something for the public to be aware of make sure or check when you do go to a beach if is a beach that normally has lifeguards to see if lifeguards are working and where they are and what hours now in terms of the pools that's the public relations issue because the pools just won't open if there isn't enough staff there are municipal and provincial well provincial health regulations that require so many lifeguards um, to be in each pool depending on the size so no lifeguards the pools are closed. And that is very upsetting uh, for the public because I think, you know, as Canadians, summer's our happy season. We look forward to it all year and especially uh, to go swimming. And uh, if there's no pool, if your local pool is not available, uh, then that is very disappointing. It's also, I I feel very um, conscious of those pools that are in sort of lower income neighborhoods because for those kids the pool is their summer 
They hang out at the pool. They spend their days at the pool. Many of them don't have cottages or holidays or camps to go to. And the pool is the center of their summer. So if there's no pool open in their neighborhood, then um, it's going to be a really, you know, sad summer and other, you know, other issues, social issues could cascade out of that. So it's it's really at this point, uh, Ben, it's really hard to know which pools will open. They are scrambling um, diligently to uh, to get enough pools. So I think, you know, we'll know by the end of June and we'll know which pools are open and for how long. The other thing is that some municipalities, I know Toronto is one, um, when it's really hot, when there's like a heat wave, those humid heat waves that uh, Ontario has, um, what they do with the outdoor pools is that they extend the hours. And in previous years, sometimes they extend the hours and they say, oh, we can't do that because there aren't enough staff and people get very upset. I think there's a bit of a expectation that the pools will be open and that's something that people look forward to, you know. Yeah, always- they're certainly seen as kind of a public good. I remember even my, in my neighborhood growing up, the, the local pool was very popular, especially, you know, a sort of a dense urban neighborhood, not a lot of places to cool down. So the pool really was, uh, did offer literally a respite. Any chance of relief? Uh, are you seeing people applying? Are you seeing people getting trained? Uh, do, might it look better next year? Uh, well, you know, this, there's going, this is the short-term problem, but there's going to be a medium and long-term problem, uh, Ben, because as you, as you can imagine, for two years of, of pools being closed, it means that um, kids couldn't take their their swimming lessons, their learn to swim, and their pre lifeguarding and lifeguarding courses. So what that means is the you know the pathway or the pipeline to be a lifeguard is pretty empty at the moment. Um, you know those 11, 12, 13 year olds haven't had lessons for the last two years, and some may have lost their enthusiasm. Hopefully not, but even if they have. They, uh, they need to catch up and we need to have all those those uh, kids and those candidates take their pre-lifeguarding courses and their lifeguarding courses when they're 15 so that we'll have lifeguards in the future. So this is this is something that's not going to go away in the short term. And it's, you know, it's not enough to put up a, a staff needed sign, need to have qualified staff, as you can imagine, to be a lifeguard, you need to have the pre-lifeguarding courses, bronze cross, bronze medallion, first aid, and you need to have your national lifeguard certification, and it needs to be current. So all those people who've had their national lifeguard certification have to go to a clinic and take a one-day um, sort of recertification clinic to make sure all of their skills are up to speed. So uh, it's, again, getting those lifeguards who maybe haven't worked in a few years, come back, come back. Barbara Byers, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Ben. Bye-bye. Rental cars. You won't get a Formula One car at uh, your local rental car agency, but you may have trouble finding one anywhere this year. Uh, It's something to ponder if you're traveling. It used to be you could just sort of book book your rental car near the end. Now you kind of have to do it early. Um, During the pandemic, car rental providers downsized their fleets. Now supply chain issues mean they're having trouble replenishing them. So with more is joining me me now from Ottawa is Craig Hirota. He's Vice President of Government Relations and Member Services at the Associated Canadian Car Rental Operators. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. So uh, what is the situation heading into uh, what is always a busy summer season, I imagine? Uh, Right now, uh, industry fleets are, are probably still down. Uh, for this time of the year, um, we're probably down potentially 15 to 20 percent, um, largely because of the uh, the supply chain issues affecting new vehicle production. 
So that's really still the question. You're still feeling that hangover in terms of uh, replenishing your fleets following uh, following the pandemic. Yes, absolutely. So what kind of impact does that have? I mean, what does that mean for the average uh, Canadian who's like, hmm, maybe I'll take a date. Maybe I'll, t- maybe I'll take a trip this weekend and rent a car. Well, it it has affected a lot of things. Um, one, we, we as an industry can't resupply our fleets to meet our normal uh, seasonal demands. So this spring or this spring and certainly this summer, uh, we, we will probably be forecasted to still be uh, below what a normal uh, spring summer season would normally require. Um, but it's also it's also affected our cost structure. We've had to run our vehicles a lot longer than normal because we can't cycle them out uh, on the uh, the previous schedules because we're we're not getting new vehicles uh, in the quantities we we used to. So um, a lot of the costs have gone up, and a lot of the uh, related overhead uh, things involving you know even even regular maintenance and repair vehicles is taking longer due to due to parts delays and and things like that. So you're having to try and keep those those cars that were still in the fleet going longer just to make up for the lack of supply. Yes, yes. Um, is is it the same across the country? Are you seeing the same issues across the country, or is it worse in some areas and better than better in others? Where would that be? Well, it, it's actually a global issue, but it, it, you know, certainly in North America, it is it is everywhere in North America, and in in jurisdictions, particularly in Canada, where we have very very short but very peaky uh summer seasons you know atlantic canada comes to mind and, and you know potentially some of the some of the you know the mountain and coastal communities um as well in the, in the western half of the, the country um we are seeing you know pretty acute uh vehicle shortages um you know those 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 jurisdictions tend to struggle even during the best of times because uh the seasonal demand uh peaks so strongly and and the season is so short but uh you know in 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 the current times when the industry is a little bit back on fleets um you know it's it's exaggerated there yeah i mean what kind of advice would you give then to to either canadians thinking of renting thinking of going flying somewhere and renting or or from people coming from outside of the country who are maybe thinking of leaving this to the last minute and doing what they used to do which is i mean i've often read that renting the car was the last thing you did right when you were booking a vacation maybe not this time yeah certainly and you know i guess i uh, it's 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 crazy to think, but I, I you know we can refer to the pre-pandemic years as sort of in the old days. But but yeah, in, in the pre-pandemic uh, days, um, vehicle supply was very elastic. There was almost always enough cars, uh, with again the exception of, of certain you know peak demand locations. But so so you could always you could always leave the car to the last sort of the last minute because there was there was always going to be a car somewhere. Um, nowadays, with with limited supply. Uh, you definitely want to try and secure your reservation as early as possible uh, so that you have an idea of, of what it, you know, of what it's going to cost and what the availability is like. But, you know, with the rare exception of certain jurisdictions, um, there are going to always be cars available. You just have to, uh, you know, be pretty diligent in searching for them. So, you know, book your reservation as, as far out as possible, but, but keep checking, you know, even on a daily basis, if you're so inclined to see if, availability and or uh, pricing has changed at your desired location. In terms of just the rentals themselves, I know that people were used to getting certain deals. I imagine that a lot of the, uh, a lot of the perks to try and get people to rent have been probably been removed at this point because there's not necessary. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's completely accurate. You know, I know 
at a personal level, I'm still getting, uh, you know, targeted ads from the various loyalty programs from various Carbonyl companies. So, so I, you know, I think everybody is still, you know, they're, they're still trying very hard to let the customers know that they are there and they are there for them. Um, you know, pricing is stronger now because our cost structure is, has changed in the last couple of years, uh, you know, and the de- demand is supporting the price structure. But, but uh, you know, c- rental cars are still a great value. Um, you know, the average price of a new car in Canada now is somewhere around $50,000. So, um, you know, in a lot of ways, the current pricing is is actually, you know, sort of in a lot of ways, finally appropriate for the value of the vehicles that uh, we have to put in our fleets. But, but, um, but uh, you know, there, there are always going to be ebbs and flows in the utilization. So, um, you know, the, the operators in those markets are always going to try and find incentives to make sure as many cars are on rents as, as, as possible. So, so I, I know you, again, I shouldn't be asking you to pull out the crystal ball, but do you have a sense of when this might start to ease a little bit for, uh, for your membership? Well, we're, we're, we're looking at the, you know, at the signals we get from the manufacturers when, when their production starts to, um, start to approach, you know, you know, pre-pandemic levels, uh, that's, that's sort of the earliest sign. Um, and then after that, it's a matter of how they allocate their production between uh, retail demand and, uh, and fleet demand. Um, you know, a lot of things can change that pretty quickly. Uh, you know, the, the larger, you know, effects of the economy, you know, could have an effect on retail demand. So that may free up, you know, more allocation to fleet. So everything could change pretty quickly, but we're hopeful in 2023, we're going to start seeing, uh, you know, a, a, re- a return of, of normal uh, vehicle allocations for our industry and allow us to get sort of back on the, the normal fleet programs and, and bring our costs back down to where they might've been pre-pandemic. So a last word of advice then for, uh, for Canadians heading in between now and then, and certainly heading into this summer, I'll give you the last word for, uh, for listeners as to what they should know, what to expect and uh, how they should pre-plan. Um, Definitely try to book as early as possible. You know, keep checking on a regular basis to see if the, the vehicle or location that you really want ha- has has come uh, available. Um, and then uh, when you do get your car, um, you know, use your cell phone, take photos of the vehicle, document the ca- car condition. Um, the cars that you're getting, you know, some of them will be a little bit older than you might be used to. And so just to avoid any, any issues or customer dispute uh, potential, you know, document the car condition um that yourself that way you you also can uh, can assist the carbonal company in case there's ever any question as to whether or not that car was returned in the same condition as received craig harada thank you so much for your time tonight i appreciate it thank you 